Good afternoon. Welcome to another episode of Worthy for 30. I'm your host, uh, Eric Tash. With me today is Bo Peabody, the co-founder and executive chairman of Seated. Thank you, Eric. Appreciate it. Excellent. So, Bo, what I'd like to do in the first minute, let's say, of the show is to really provide the listeners and you, the, my co-host or guest, with a, with a premise for Worthy for 30 and why I lead this show. The, the premise or the genesis is really to highlight the business owners and leaders who are doing good and giving back while, while pursuing success, knowing that doing good and giving back while pursuing success aren't, shouldn't be considered mutually exclusive. And seeing a recent interview on Yahoo Finance and your team's uh, motivation to help business uh, or, or restaurant owners, businesses, bars to survive coming out of uh, quarantine and coming out of the pandemic made me think I should reach out to Bo and bring him onto the show to just give us some background on your progression you know, to where you are now at Seated, as well as just give, providing uh, a more in-depth view on Seated and how you are helping the restaurant owners uh, you serve. Great. Thank you. I appreciate it. It's good to be here. Uh, so Seated really started 26 years ago when I became a restaurant owner, <laughs> um, which happened through an odd set of circumstances, but I have owned co-owned, I should say, a restaurant group in Western Massachusetts for 26 years. We have one restaurant that's been around that entire time, and we've had several other concepts during that time. And we also have a large events business where we do about 50 or 60 weddings a year. I had It was always a bit of a side hustle for me. My sort of primary focus is, is on tech entrepreneuring and investing. But about 10 years ago, I decided that I wanted to merge those two worlds. And so I did two things. I got much more involved in the restaurant group and involved with my co-owner. And I shifted my focus as an entrepreneur and investor towards hospitality tech. And seated, probably two or three years into that journey, I decided that I wanted to start something in the space. And I meandered around a little bit, tried a couple of different concepts and landed on Seated when I met my co-founder of Seated, a guy called Bryce Gumpel. And Bryce had been working on a couple of different concepts in the hospitality space as well. And sort of had the genesis of the Seated idea, which I found to be compelling. And I thought as an operator, I could actually bring a fair bit of, of knowledge to the table and that's what has led to what Seated is today. And the, the primary observation is that Seated is very, uh, restaurants are very similar to hotels and airlines and sporting events. They, 75% of their costs every single day are fixed mm -hmm. and they have a certain amount of capacity and the more of that capacity they fill, the more profitable they are. And what has made those businesses profitable is dynamic pricing so that you make sure you fill the seats. Certain seats cost more than others. Certain times of the day, you pay more to go to a basketball game on Saturday than you do on Monday. There's a lot of levers 
And the restaurant business has just never been able to take advantage of dynamic pricing for a lot of reasons. And we decided that we could bring a dynamic pricing sort of layer to restaurant going that would help operators to maximize their capacity and therefore maximize their profitability. Excellent. So you've created, it sounds like you've created a marketplace for restaurant owners to promote their locations, as well as a discovery platform for patrons and consumers who they open up the seated app if they're in New York City, for instance, and they can see being a seated member myself, I can see based on area of the city as well as cuisine, what restaurants are on the seated platform as well as some of those incentives to get that consumer, get me as a patron to try that restaurant. Can you help us uh, understand some of that incentivizing that Seated allows restaurant owners to use to to drive awareness and to drive uh, foot traffic into the restaurants? Yeah, it's very simple. The restaurant chooses a percentage of the check that they are willing to pay in order to incentivize a certain action. So they may be willing to pay 25% of the check to get you to dine at five o'clock on a Monday night. And they might only be willing to pay 10% of the check to get you to dine at seven o'clock on a Saturday night. And they can vary those percentages based on pretty much anything they want, day of week, time of day, even the type of dining that you're doing, whether it's dining in or picking up your food or or having it delivered. And then we have a very simple model where we take 75% of whatever the restaurant has decided to offer and we give it to the user as the incentive and we keep the other 25% Mm -hmm. for making the market. So if a restaurant, just to use round numbers, if a restaurant's willing to pay 20% of the check to have you come to the restaurant on a certain day at a certain time, you will see 15% as your incentive and seated will keep the other 5%. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. So again, very simple, very transparent in terms of what the consumer, how the, what the, how the consumer benefits, what their percentage of that benefit is, your uh, seated take rate, as well as speaking to that dynamic pricing within the hospitality restaurant space, being able to toggle with that to really drive up demand for a, a restaurant, depending upon the, the day of week and the time within that day and week. So just shifting gears a little bit, we, we're talking about the going back to the pandemic when in New York City and a host of other uh, large cities shut down, which you know crippled to to to, to be blunt, crippled the hospitality industry where consumers or patrons weren't allowed to dine out uh, at restaurants. And what I saw from you and your team at Seated Bow was how can we help restaurant owners, right? How can we be not just to to lead this marketplace to connect restaurant with patron, but it it went beyond that, right? It went beyond just getting people to know about and to try a restaurant. Can you help us understand what was that switch? Like when did, was it like immediate where you said to you and your team, we need to do something more than just getting butts and seats at restaurants? 
It wasn't a big change for us. We've always just had one goal, which is to help to give a tool to restaurant operators to maximize their occupancy. And it just became much more important during the pandemic for them to do that than it had been prior. Now, the thing that we did do is that for pickup and delivery, we didn't take any cut of the take rate. So whatever they decided to offer as a reward, we passed a hundred percent through to the consumer. And we also on our dine-in product, we also, you know, lowered the percentage of the commission that we kept versus what we gave to the consumer. And we did a number of things, including building seated at home, which is the, the pickup and delivery product to help restaurants. But I, and we, we did a couple of things in Massachusetts and Boston. We did something called Eat Out to Help Out, which was pioneered in the UK where we, where we gave, gave a percentage of every receipt, no matter whether they were a seated partner or not, any restaurant receipt that was submitted on a Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday, I think we did, it was a long time ago now, we provided a reward just to help Boston recover. And we did that in conjunction with the Massachusetts Restaurant Association. We did a, a few programs where we were just you know, purely off of our business model, being acting, acting as a, a charitable organization, just trying to help restaurants to get back on their feet. But fundamentally, the value proposition of seated for the restaurant hasn't really changed. You have to maximize your occupancy. It's a very simple business. People say, oh, the restaurant business is hard. It is hard, but it's not complicated. <laughs> you, it's hard to operate, hard to execute, but it's not a complicated business. Depending on your fixed costs, which of course is mostly rent, you have to fill a certain percentage of your seats every night to cover your fixed costs. And every dollar that you generate after you cover your fixed costs has a 75% gross profit margin. And so when people say to me that the restaurant business has terrible margins, I say, you're, you're wrong. Businesses that don't work have terrible margins, <laughs> but a restaurant that's working, Bocaria, where I sit on the board, has extraordinary the margins are like software business margins. It just, it's just about occupancy rates. And if your occupancy rates are in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, you're going to be profitable. And if they're in the 50s and 60s or 40s, you're not. And the reason why people give the restaurant industry a bad rap is because national occupancy rates for full-service restaurants hover at around 50%, which is some, I think, has to do not with the fact that there are too many restaurants, but more with the fact that it's an esoteric. The pricing model hasn't evolved in the way that other businesses that are like the restaurant industry have. And now with dynamic pricing and seated, you start to see that restaurants that were half full on a Tuesday night are now 60% full. And that difference of 10% improves their profit margins by 50% mm -hmm. on that night. So it's quite extraordinary the impact that we can have on a restaurant by just filling 10 or 15 tables a night. 
That is, it's, as you explain it, as you unpack it and you simplify it, it makes sense. Uh, and I imagine these are some of the conversations you're having with the restaurants within, with on the, within the seated platform, again, I imagine. But thinking about th- this, it, it sounds like a formula. I don't, I don't want to sound oversimplistic, but it sounds like a formula. When you look at Union Square Hospitality and some of these other hospitality groups, do you think they've devised a formula for to meet that occupancy, to get, again, consistent patrons in their restaurants? I think that, I think Union Square Hospitality Group, I, I know them well. And they are not a seated platform user, and they should be. And they've, they've we've talked to them several times. I think they rely on a, a on a slightly outdated view of the world, which is if our product is great, then people the seats will be full. Mm-hmm. And I think that they do a lot of work to choose their locations, to choose the size of the restaurant. And they obviously probably have a much better fixed cost model than most restaurants because landlords want a Danny Meyer restaurant in their building. So I can't speak to the, the exact economics of their restaurants, but I don't think that there's, even at the best operators, so forget Union Square, but even at the best operators, the, the math that's being done isn't at the level that it should be. And I talk to operators all the time and even the best ones, I say, what's your occupancy rate? And they'll say, I'm 90% full. And what they mean is that at one point during the night, they're 90% full. (laughs) And that is not 90% full. That is probably more like 65 or 70% full if you do the math across the whole evening. So there's a, look, people get into the restaurant business 50% 50% because they want to have a business and 50% because they have a lot of artistry and passion for food and hospitality. So it's not surprising that the business side of it is sometimes under underappreciated by owners. But I think what we're trying to bring is a just a very simple way for them to think about the math so that it doesn't have to be scary or boring. It can just be, Hey, if I get to 75% occupancy, I'm going to have a much better time because my staff's going to be happier. My chef's going to be happier. Like a a profitable restaurant is a happier restaurant. Oh, I can imagine. Oh yeah. It's it's good times. You want the good times uh, to celebrate and for everyone to be, to be happy that the, the restaurant's successful and there's consistent occupancy. So, so when you mentioned this bifurcation between the person who wants to start a restaurant because of the business and the other one, the other 50% that, you know, is passionate about culinary and making great food and the, what, what, and all that ensues, do you think that there's, so you look at you know, the shows like Top Chef, for instance, or Chopped, that it glamorizes the, the culinary industry where some of that business or the economics, which you've mentioned, is glossed over and there should be some sort of focus during that programming. So people who are watching at home don't automatically think that, okay, if I put up, if I cook well and I put up a, a shingle outside my home or establishment, people are automatically going to flock and I'm going to have a sustainable business. There are a fair number of reality shows that, that focus on 
the business of the restaurant. I can't remember the names of them right now, but there was one I think called Restaurant Recovery or something where they go into a restaurant that's failing and they remake it in and make it successful. And so I, I do think that there's, I, I don't think reality, I think if anything, the television around chefs has been super helpful for the industry and making chefs celebrities and elevating the art form, I think has been really good. Look, I, I believe that dining is the common denominator of urbanites. I may like art and, and you may like sports, but we both like to dine out. Everybody likes to dine out. I say restaurants have no detractors. And I, I think that the more that is celebrated, the, the better. And the pain that goes on underneath that is what I would like to relieve. And I think it's relatively easy to relieve by simplifying the lens for the operators and just making it, it's literally just one metric. It's occupancy rate. If you focus on that and you know what it is and you look at it every week over week, right? You look at what was last Monday versus this Monday versus next Monday, and you just keep grinding down to improve that rate on each night, you will be successful. It's just, it's a very simple thing. And I, I, I don't, I don't think that any amount of TV is going to help that. I think it's just operators understanding it and being willing to focus on it. Excellent. Excellent. One question I have, and it just popped into my head. So when Howard Schultz started Starbucks back in the seventies or when he bought Starbucks and built it to what it is today, he thought of Starbucks as the third room. You have your home, you have your office, and then you have Starbucks to hang out. Is there a restaurant, this is more of a personal question, but is there a restaurant in New York City that you think that fits that description of that third room? Well, it's a different one for every person. Okay, what's, um, okay better, better question. Yeah. What's your third room if you had to choose? I love John McDonald's restaurants. John is one of my favorite operators. He runs Mercer Street Hospitality Group. His restaurants are Lure, Hancock Street, Bistro Leo, Bar Tulix is his new one. Mm -hmm. And he's just a, and, and Bowery Meat Company. And he's just a great, I love the vibe in the restaurants. I love the food. My wife and I, and even my kids are at his restaurants, you know, at least once or twice a week. And it's just that there's a setting and a mood that gets that John's that John creates that I find to be very comfortable. And I tend to see people I know at his restaurants. They're all in Soho. I live in Tribeca. The proximity is is important. And John is in his restaurants every single night. It was quite remarkable. He literally drives around and visits each venue and visits the, the people at the tables that he knows and checks on the music and the lighting and, and everything. I, I see him, the guy is 20 years into this and I see him bussing tables. And it's just, it's that type of passion for the details that creates that third room. I also feel strongly Jan de Roquefort, who operates Bocaria, is a very different type of operator, but an equally good one. And I think that the consistency 
that gets created at a Boqueria restaurant, whether you're at Boqueria Soho or Boqueria Upper East Side or Fulton Market in Chicago or the new one in downtown Nashville, you're going to get the same experience and the same high quality food. And that's very difficult to do. And so what John does is creates different environments and different venues and moods in all of his different restaurants. And and Jan creates the, the same type of feeling in each one of his restaurants. And I think those are two equally valuable things to do as a restaurateur. And that's why I love going to John's restaurants and to Boqueria. No, that's great. And, and the, the, that personalized touch of John going and checking the different locations, the different restaurants, talking to regular patrons or people he recognizes. Do you think that, I think that would go a long way, right? To help drive that occup- occupancy rate, at least consistently? Absolutely. I, I, John knows who's on the books every single night at every single one of his restaurants. And he will generally visit the table sometimes for a minute, sometimes for an hour and that's that creates a lot of, of goodwill. And it also just, it makes people feel loved. And I, I love, I, I think restaurants, the reason that restaurants are so important to the human psyche is that if you think about what's happening at a restaurant, right? You are outsourcing the gathering and the preparation of your sustenance. And the last time that you did that was when you were a baby, right? <laughs> when, and so you become quite vulnerable when you're in a restaurant. And that vulnerability can lead to elation when, you, when your expectations are met, just as it, when you're a baby and your expectations are met, you giggle and you're happy and you sleep. We had a restaurant when your expectations are met, you never stop talking about it. You tell your friends, you have, it's, but when they're not met, that's what leads to people behaving poorly in restaurants because I think people obviously need to learn how to control themselves. But the reason that they feel that way is because they became vulnerable and felt in that vulnerable state that they were mistreated. And that's what leads to that feeling. So it's a roller coaster when you're at a restaurant. You can leave thinking it was one of the best things that's happened to you in a long time. And you can leave thinking, I'm quite disappointed. And I think when the owner comes and visits your table, even if the steak was a little overcooked, like you're going you're gonna to be able to overlook that. And part of your vulnerability was serviced by the fact that somebody who is the owner of the restaurant recognized you and cares about you and, and came and, and recognized and recognize that you were there. Oh, 100%. 100%. You know, I, I would think that, you know, to, to the lay person, the lay person who goes to a restaurant infrequently, they perhaps have a, have a thought or a notion in their head that the, the owner is, is not on premise. Perhaps they're in an office They're they've outsourced, talking about outsourcing, they've outsourced the day-to-day management to a staff. But I think once you see that owner and they identify themselves and, and they introduce themselves to your point, steak's a little overcooked, but you know what? You introduce yourself. You said, I'm the owner. Is there anything, is there anything we didn't do correctly? Can you let me know? We're always looking to improve. That goes a long way. That sort of qualitative feedback you can't get in, in, sort, in a focus group. That's it, right. It has to but, be one-on-one. And, but again, like Jan 
at Boqueria does not do that. He operates the restaurant from the background, but they're equally good experiences. Mm -hmm. And it's a focus on consistency versus a, a focus on, on the details. And I think that is, those are two very valid ways to run a restaurant group. I think for sole operators, it, you really do. I, as a co-owner, am not in the restaurant, obviously, because I don't live where my restaurant is, but I, you know, co-owners, one of whom is the executive chef is obviously there every night. And Mm -hmm. my other co-owner, Nancy Thomas is in the restaurant, you know, two, three, four nights a week. So it's just, it just depends. But I think, I think it'd be done both ways. And that's why I, I always list John and Jan as, as operators that are different, but equally effective. Equally effective. Because again, they're focusing on that consistency, on yep. that consistent dining experience. So I know we're, we're running up on, on time. My last question, and one thing that I definitely want to discuss is, in addition to being on the board of Bocaria, running seated. You're also a venture partner at Graycroft. And I have, I have a soft spot for Graycroft being a Buddy Media alum and seeing that Alan Patrickoff just uh, released his biography or memoir. Is there anything, whether it's Alan, more Alan than anything, that that he's, has he set an example of, of how to run uh, a business or run a startup and or what to look for in a founder to support and to, uh, to fund? I was with Alan last night at his book party and he, in his remarks, he was describing sort of the genesis of the book. The book is called No Red Lights. And I think what Alan brings to every venture and what he certainly brought to Graycroft is a, just a constant desire to keep learning uh, and to try new things and to be open-minded. And that I think is the hallmark of a great entrepreneur or anybody really operating in the entrepreneurial ecosystem, whether they're an investor or an operator, you have to be constantly willing to learn and adapt and going from web one to web two to web three, regardless of whether you believe in that construction or not, it, there's real change that has happened across our technology landscape that if you're someone who isn't adaptable to change, you, you will have missed a lot of those trends. But if Alan just has his sort of mental aperture is so wide and he's just constantly willing to try new things. And I think that's what makes him a great business person and a great human. That's great. And, and being open-minded. So it sounds that you have to have some sort of self-awareness, you know, what's changing you know, to, to understand your surroundings. Where's the puck going a little bit? Also have a little bit of humility. You may not know something, but who can I talk to? What can I absorb to learn what I don't know? Is that more of an, is that an accurate assessment of trying new things or trying to expand your horizons? Yeah, I think that in, I've always said that the quality you need to be in the entrepreneurial ecosystem is a, a Zen-like ability to be simultaneously maniacally attached to something and at the same time, dispassionately detached. 
and it's it just means that you have to be willing to be incredibly focused on something and then let it go in a minute. And that is that is a hard thing for a lot of people to do. If they spend a year working on something, they will spend another year working on it, even if it isn't working. And that's a bad thing when you're in this world and in this business. You have to be willing to very quickly switch directions. And I think that is related to being open-minded and trying new things. And it's what I think if you look at all the successful people in this ecosystem, they have some version of that trait. Yeah, no, 100%. I always go back to Tony Shea and delivering happiness. When he sold his first startup to Microsoft, he left early before earning his full earnout from the acquisition because he was focused on the next thing. He had to, to your point, he had to detach from, what, from his previous venture to then focus on what became Zappos. Because again, he, he had that, 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 that fire uh, in him to switch directions and to expand into what he thought the world, or where the world was going yeah. with, with, with customer service and with shoes. Bo, I know we're, we're a few minutes over. This has been great. I really do appreciate your time and your insights and your perspective on the hospitality and restaurant industry. I suggest, and I'll post, what I suggest is for anyone listening to check out Seated. It's a great app, a great utility to find what restaurants and bars are in your neighborhood that are worth trying. So thank you. Thanks, Eric. Take care.